Sherry read earlier the passage that we're in today, and you can turn there. It's Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, uh, 23. <clears throat> uh, we, we have a tendency to make God small. Um, we, we diminish God, uh, and I, I suspect it's because we are so small. I don't think we mean to, uh, to reduce God, um, but even when we do our best of exalting Jesus, of magnifying Jesus, we don't even come close to really uh, describing or understanding who Jesus is. I'm confident that uh, when believers see Jesus face to face, if we're able to speak or, or once we're able to speak, uh, we'll say things to Jesus like, I didn't, I just didn't know. I didn't understand how great you are. I, I said words like, Jesus, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I sang songs and lifted my hands to you and proclaimed your holiness, your goodness, that you are love, that you are wise, but I didn't understand how great you are. Well, this passage uh, is one that challenges our small view of Christ. You could spend the rest of your life considering what Paul says in these eight verses about Christ. You could spend your whole life thinking about everything that he directly tells us and everything that it implies. I'm pretty sure that it'll take all of eternity to grasp passages like this one. Here's our truth statement, um, and this is just the thing I hope you walk away with. Like, if you forget everything else, I hope you get this, um, this piece. Christ is supreme, and by that I mean ultimate authority. He has ultimate authority over all things, making him sufficient to pay for sin, and he secures the hope we have in the gospel. So Christ is supreme over all things, making him sufficient to pay for sin, and he secures the hope that we have in the gospel. Let's jump in. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is absolutely supreme, and, and it's like Paul, it's like he zooms us out here, like it, 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 almost outside of the universe, if that were somehow possible, so that we can see everything that Jesus created. We, we see galaxies that, that our telescopes don't have a chance at seeing. We can't see our galaxy. We certainly can't see our planet because it's so tiny in comparison to everything that God has created. And Paul tells us that Jesus is Lord over all of it. He's the creator of everything we can see and everything that we cannot see. There are a couple things in this passage that kind of trip me up every time I read it, even though I'm pretty familiar with it. And maybe, um, maybe you get tripped up in some of these as well. The first one for me is when it says he's the firstborn of all creation. We, we know that Jesus was born, but does this, is Paul saying that he was created? Because uh, that would go against the rest of Scripture, that, that Jesus is eternal. Um, 
Firstborn, obviously, it's, it's the firstborn in, a, in the family, right? This is the most basic meaning. In Scripture, when it talks firstborn, it's talking firstborn son. Very different from our, our culture, but the firstborn son uh, was significant. The firstborn son had the place of honor. They were treated differently. Their inheritance, the inheritance for the firstborn son, was unlike the inheritance for every following kid. Um, you and your siblings might joke or partially joke about who's the favorite uh, kid in the family, right, of mom or dad. It was no joke back then. The firstborn had the place of honor. They were the favored one. So firstborn is also used in scripture um, as an analogy, right, of exalted status. We, we, uh, uh, we could look at uh, Psalm 89:27. I'll read this for you, and this is talking about David. He says, I'll make him, David, obviously Christ as well, but I'll make David, the firstborn, and then the next verse tells us what that means. The highest of the kings of earth. He's, he's saying, I'm going to give David this exalted status, comparing that to uh, the firstborn son in a family. He, he's going to be the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn is exalted, but then it says firstborn of creation. So what does, what does the of mean, which sounds silly to even say that, but you, you Google, well, what does of mean? Uh, we use it in 10 different ways as a preposition. Like, I didn't know that. Never thought about that before. I won't bore you with all the details of that. Um, so there's, a, I could say it this way. There's, um, I, I could use of this way. There's a house uh, that, I, that I pass every day when I take my kids to school, and it's made of bricks. I could say that's a house of bricks, meaning the material that that house is made of is bricks. Or I could, um, I could use of, I could say that Terry Stotts is the head coach of the Portland Trailblazers. And by that, I mean that Terry Stotts is the coach over the Trailblazers. And, and, and that's, that's the meaning here of, of the NIV uh, reads, he's the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is exalted and he's over creation. Verse 16 uh, helps solidify that. It starts, with, it starts with the word for, so an explanation is falling for. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and it goes on. So you wouldn't say um, by him or in him all things were made if Jesus was simply a part of creation, but it does make sense if Paul is saying that Christ is over all of creation. So I hope, I hope that helps you when you get stuck, because I get stuck. And, and what, what we need to do is look at the immediate context right around that verse, look, at, look in the book, and, and then even the whole of Scripture. So it starts off and says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And if you've been in church even for a bit, that might be old hat to you. Maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, I know that. I know that, Greg. You might even say, duh, when you hear that, because we've heard this so much. Um, for people uh, like me that were born uh, post-1972, I was born way after 1972, if you're keeping record, um, uh, we, uh, well, let, let's bring up this picture here. Um, so this, this picture of the earth, it's, uh, it's been called the blue marble. This has been around my whole life. So while I see that picture, and I've always thought it was neat, um, I don't appreciate, I don't appreciate historically um, what it was like to see that picture for the first time. The next image is, uh, this is our first image of Earth in 1946. They shot a rocket up, and, and they, they, they put a camera in that rocket and tried to 
tried to secure that thing and soften that thing because when it came back down to earth, everything smashed. The lens smashed, the casing smashed, but the film inside was good. This is the first picture that we have of earth. And it looks like an ultrasound, right? Um, it, it, like, like when you go in, when your wife's pregnant and, and the ultrasound tech says, that's, that's your baby. And you pretend and go, yeah, I see that. Um, so that, that's 1946. Let's go to the next one. Uh, this is uh, 1966, right? It's better-ish, right? This is from the moon uh, we see Earth. Let's go to uh, what we got in 1968, way better. This is called uh, Earthrise. Um, that is beautiful. That's pretty amazing. And I'm, I'm sure seeing that for the first time just blew people's minds. Um, but then uh, in 1972, we come back to Blue Marble. This is what people saw. And I wish that I could erase like all, all, all my memory of seeing pictures of Earth and, and see this like so many people did for the first time. So imagine for Paul what it was like to realize who Christ is, what, what Christ is like. Right? The Jewish people knew the invisible God throughout their history. Uh, he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Moses later asked God, I want to see your glory. Will you show me your glory? And God says, you can't, you can't handle that and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'll cover you. I'll pass before you. And then I'll give you a little peek of just the, the residue, the tail end of my glory. We know that God appeared to Israel in the pillar of the cloud in the pillar of fire. We, we know that um, God was in the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, where one time and only one time a year, just the high priest could go in. Right? They, they, knew, they knew of God, but God, in so many ways, was completely invis in, in, invisible to them. So imagine as this letter is passed around to churches and was read, I'm sure that jaws just dropped when they heard this description of Jesus. And who knows how much of the rest of the letter they even, they even heard as their minds were wrapping around the words that Paul said. Not only is Jesus the visible image of God, but as we discussed a moment ago, he's above all creation. He rules over creation because he's the creator of all things. It's in him that all things were created, heaven and earth. It says visible and what is invisible, saying everything. The entire visible world, which in our time, way more of the world is visible now than, than it used to be. Um, Alex is going to bring up a video. Uh, I think this video is called The Life of a Cell. It's really, really cool. I can't show you the whole thing, uh, or I'm not going to show you the whole thing. Um, it's suitable. Um, uh, th this is narrated here, and so this is what, this is what happens in, in a healthy cell, a cell that's functioning right. Um, let's watch this and, and listen to the description here. Oh, there's so much more, but isn't that crazy? That, that's happening all the time in you. I, I think that is so cool. That motor protein guy at the end there, I wish we could hang out. Like, um, uh, unbelievable that that's, that's happening in our cells, right? And Jesus... He's the one that thought it all up, right? He, he's the one that, that makes that happen. It, it's unbelievable. And he created not only what is visible, including things that are now visible to us, but, but he created what is invisible too, powers and authorities that we don't see. 
right? angels, demons, stuff that, that we know exists from Scripture, but, but we don't see these things, and Christ, Christ is over them. If Christ has created all things, he has power over all things. There, there are no threats to Christ. He is holding together everything. It works because he makes it work. He sustains it. Everything was created in him, through him, and for him. Why? It's created for his glory because he's supremely worthy of all glory. One commentator wrote this. He said, Christ brings clarity to our hazy notions of the immortal, invisible God who lives in unapproachable light. In Christ, we see who God is, creator and redeemer, what God is like, a God of mercy and love, and what God does, one who sends his son to rescue people from the domain of darkness and brings about the reconciliation of creation through his death on the cross. Verse 17 says he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Like I said, he's keeping everything working. He's sustaining everything in the universe. Right? Gravity works because Jesus says it's going to keep working. And if, if he changes his mind someday, I'm not suggesting it will. But if he did, it'd be done. And life would get real interesting real fast for us. And again, maybe this is old hat, but imagine being the Colossian church or one of the other churches that heard this letter, realizing what Paul is saying, right, about Jesus. And for us, Jesus is 2,000 years ago. But for them, it wasn't that long ago that he walked those roads, that the Romans crucified him. He's holding everything together. Planets orbit because of Jesus. Our eyes work because of Jesus. My eye doctor, um, he spends way, way too much time with me probably, but he just geeks out on the eye. So let's show an image here of the eye. He was telling me about, about the eye and how complex it is. Okay, so here's kind of the whole eye here. Uh, Alex, show the next slide. He said, when you donate your body to science, all they can use of the eye is that front little part there, the, the lens and forward, because the rest of the eye is way too complex. The, uh, the optic nerve um, is what keeps us from being able to do whole eye transplants. I said us. I have nothing to do with it. They don't consult me. Um, uh, what keeps eye doctors from being able to do that? Um, so uh, he was describing it to me this way. He said, Greg, you know the last time you got a new TV, and you had, to, you had to hook up all the inputs, right, for like cable box or you know, whatever you have back there and, and how confusing and frustrating that could be. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get that. He said the optic nerve, it, it's got these fibers in them that, that connect to the brain. And all of those fibers, they have to connect right. And, and there's, in any given human eye, there's somewhere between 770,000 and 1.7 million fibers. Right? So we have no chance right now maybe ever, of, of being able to take an eye out of someone and connect it to their optic nerve to connect to the brain. But, but Jesus, he made that. He, he made it work so that as a baby is formed, all those fibers are hooked up the right way. It's absolutely incredible. We could go on and on and on. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we were out in the cosmos, and now we zoom in to the church, where, of course, Christ is the head. 
And head doesn't only mean over, but it also means he, he's our source. Right? I, could, I, I could get my legs amputated, I could lose an arm, and I can still live. But if my head's chopped off, I'm done. Christ is the head of the body. He's our sustenance. He directs the church. He doesn't neglect the church. He loves the church. He cares for the church. He sustains all things, including the church. He grows the church, maturing the church. He provides for the church. He equips the church with everything that we need. The second half of 18 there, it says, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, we, we see firstborn, and now we know we think exalted one. He, he's the beginning of resurrected life, right? He's the founder of resurrected life. He initiated new life, and, and because he rose from the dead, believers have assurance that, that we will be resurrected as well if we follow him. So Paul takes us from creation to new creation, and, and that Christ is the, the exalted source of new life because he is the firstborn from the dead. He opens up the possibility for anyone who would follow him to have new life. In John 14, 19, the second half of the verse, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. He is the source of our life. It says that he might be preeminent, and I'm sure that's a word you use every day. I don't, so every time I read this passage, I'm like, ah, I kinda know what preeminent is. What, what is it, I, I gotta look it up. It, all surpassing, or, or one definition said, having a paramount rank, right? He is. He's absolutely supreme. His supremacy or his preeminence, Paul tells us, is the result of his resurrection. Now, Christ was already supreme, but there was an issue of sin in the world, and he came and conquered sin and death. He is Lord. And still, though, in a sense, he's yet to fully manifest his lordship over all creation. But there will be a time, Scripture tells us, when all things will be put under his feet his death and resurrection prove his preeminence. In verse 19, he says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We know that God is, is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Maybe you've thought that, that since there's three, um, that, that the Holy Spirit's like a third God. And Jesus is the third God, and the Father is the third God. Scripture tells us that, that they are all fully God. Right here, Paul tells us that Jesus was 100% God. He's fully every attribute of God. As we continue in this letter, we'll notice Paul's emphasis on, on, on Christ's fullness, on Christ's supremacy. 19, he, he says, he tells us that, that, that Christ is, is supreme by telling us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He wants the Colossians and he wants us to know that we'll, we won't find fullness in anyone else or anything else. It's our nature to look, um, to look because we think things are lacking in what we have, whether it's a relationship or the school you go to or your job or fill in the blank. What like We just think the grass is greener all the time. And I'm pretty sure that one of the outside teachings that was affecting the Colossians was that, that, that they were saying, hey, Jesus is good, but you need more. You need more than Christ. And Paul's pounding home, no, no, in Christ you have everything that you need. You have the image of God. You have the fullness of God himself. Christ lacks in nothing. 
verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So here we see the word all. What does he mean by that? Because some people use this verse in, in a universal salvation way, saying that everyone will be saved by Christ, even if they don't confess him in this life. But we know Paul talks about the destruction of those who do not follow Jesus. So what is he saying here? So let's, let's zoom out context a little bit to uh, chapter 3. This won't be on the screen. You've just got to follow me here. Uh, or you can turn there, obviously. Um, and, have, uh, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? So he's talking about Christians here, being renewed in the knowledge of, of the image of its creator. And then verse 7, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul, it, he does not teach that all will be saved. Verse 10 is clearly talking about Christians. And then 11 begins with here, meaning here in the body of Christ, there is not Jew and Gentile. And he, he goes on, but Christ is, uh, is all and in all. Back in verses 15 and 17, we're out over Christ being um, uh, over all of creation. Then 18, like I said, zooms into the relationship with the church. He's preeminent over the church. He is preeminent in new creation. All of creation will be touched by his reconciling work as he makes the creation new. And that verse ends with a shocking line. He says, making peace through the blood of the cross. Peace is what we all need. It's what we all long for in, in small ways and in huge ways. We long for peace um, when, when school is chaotic or your work environment is chaotic. Uh, parents, sometimes you realize how loud your kids are and you long for peace. You wonder how effective noise-canceling headphones are. Um, perhaps in uh, perhaps in a relationship or, or in, in your family, maybe there's just always been turmoil and, and you long for peace and peace in all of those situations would be good, would be a blessing. But Paul's writing about a deep, deeper peace here. He's talking about an eternal peace, a peace that only Christ can make possible. Peace between God and humanity. God determined that the way for peace to come would be through a means that had never been connected with the word peace before the cross. That through a violent and bloody cross, Jesus would bring peace. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven because Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Golgotha, where, where Jesus was crucified, was not a place of peace. It, it was a place of suffering and agony, of pain and tears. Who knows how much blood that ground had soaked up but the blood of Jesus that was spilt was unlike any other blood that had dropped on that ground before. His blood wasn't paying for, for his sin because he had none. His was the only blood sufficient to pay for the sin of humanity. The blood was willingly given, so his blood brought peace. Peace didn't come through long negotiations. Peace was won by Christ. He was a victorious over sin and death, and yet the victory came by him giving up his life. Jesus' death allows us to be made right with God, to be in right standing with God. 
uh, in his commentary, David Garland wrote, uh, the universal supremacy of Christ matches the, universal, the universality of the gospel and assures believers of the sufficiency of Christ. Let's look at Paul's description of us before Christ in verse 21. And, and in the rest of this passage here, he'll talk about our past, our present, and our future. Here's our past. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now maybe you've been following Jesus for so long that you can't even remember what it was like to feel like God was, was alien to you. Like, like, like the ways of God seemed alien to you. When, when you're alienated, you're lost, you're lonely, you're isolated, you, you have this deep sense that you do not belong. He says that we are, we are hostile in mind, or you could think hostile in mindset towards God. And he says, and doing evil deeds. Our thoughts and our behaviors go hand in hand, and what we knew before Christ was sin. And we'd hoped that sin would give us what we long for, but sin warps our minds and makes us worship anything but the true God. Sin destroys. If you are considering following Jesus, but you know that what Jesus asked for is, is all of you, and you still have sin that you want to hold on to, I want you to know that sin's only goal is to destroy you. Sin will never give you what it promises. He goes on in verse 22, talks about our present. He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus, through his body of flesh, reconciled us. And I think, I think Paul says body of flesh to remind us of who Jesus is, that, that he was human like us, that he lived life like we do, that he suffered with all the aches and pains of life. Guthrie wrote this about Jesus coming into the flesh. He is not like a king who preserves his majesty and honor only by shutting himself up in the splendor of his palace, safely isolated from the misery of the poor peasants and the threats of his enemies outside the fortress. No, his majesty is the majesty of a love so great that he leaves the palace and the royal trappings to live among his subjects as one of them sharing their condition, even at the risk of vulnerability to attack of his enemies. If we want to find this king, we will find him among the weak and lonely, his genuine majesty both revealed and hidden in choosing to share their vulnerability, suffering, their guilt, and their powerlessness. He lived just like us, but without sin so that he could die for us. He died in your place so that he could present you holy and blameless by giving you his perfect, spotless record. So you, if you're in Christ, God looks at you, he sees you, and he sees the record of his son. Perfect, spotless, blameless. He doesn't see a broken, messed up, sinful person. Verse 23 talks about our future. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which, is, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the if speaks to our future, and he asks each one of us, will you continue in the faith? The, the Christian life is full of mystery, and one of those mysteries is that we need God 
to help us to follow him, to give us the desire to follow him, to strengthen us, to give us the power. Some of the things that we prayed about last week, even in, this, uh, in the previous passage, but we also participate in following him. We make choices. We're not robots. Every day we wake up and we have a choice. Do, do I choose you, Jesus, today or not? And if you've been following Jesus for a long time, praise God. Don't take it for granted. Will you continue to follow? Will you continue to grow? We'll see in next week's passage that what Paul wants for the Colossians is for them to, to become fully mature in Christ. He, he wants and expects growth. So what are you doing to grow? Uh, my guess is that probably everyone in the room has some goals that you're working towards. Maybe they're financial Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're health or fitness goals, career goals, parenting goals. I don't know, but we have goals. Whether we write them out or not, we have goals that we're working towards. What goals do you have in, in growing in Christ, in knowing Christ, in following after Christ? How are you seeking to grow in him? What needs to happen so that you will be, like Paul says, more stable and steadfast in your faith? How are you growing in knowing Jesus? Paul doesn't want any Christian to shift from the hope that we have in the gospel. And this is what he says about that hope in the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The gospel is the universal answer to everyone's quest for spiritual fulfillment. The gospel will save people all over the planet. Now, Paul isn't saying that the gospel has already reached every part of the world. We know at this time that Paul can't wait to get to Spain because he knows the gospel hasn't gotten there yet. I think what he's doing is he's reminding Christians of the scope of our mission, that, that everyone needs to hear about salvation through Jesus, that he is the only hope that we have. And I think he's telling them, and progress is being made. His reminder that Colossian believers is God saved you so that you would help others to know and treasure Christ, the disclosure of the invisible God. So what, what does this passage mean for us? There's, there's a lot of things, but here's a few that, that I want you to think through. If the fullness of God dwells in Christ, we don't need to look at anything else or anyone else other than Christ. You can search and search and search, but nothing will satisfy you like Jesus. Know it or not, he is the one that we were created to treasure and adore. Another one, if, if Christ is the creator of everything on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, we have nothing to fear because he's Lord over everything. We can rest with confidence that there's nothing that we should be fearful about because we are his and he is Lord over everything. His supremacy over the cosmos reminds those in Christ that he is totally sufficient to save us. I don't know about you, but I wonder if there are times when you feel like your sin has to be too much. It has to be too much for Jesus to pay for. In this passage, Paul reminds us, no, he, 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 he's supreme over everything. His death was totally sufficient to save you. If Christ sustains all of creation, we can trust that no matter how hard life gets, he will also sustain us. And lastly, 
if Christ is truly supreme over all creation, is he supreme in your life? He has the right to be Lord, but is he Lord of your life? Following Jesus isn't just intellectually acknowledging that he is God, that he's creator. He gave his life for you, and, and what he demands is your life in return. And what I get nervous about is that people will think that if I go to church a bunch, if, if, I, if I try to be the best person I can be, if I do a bunch of Christian things, that, that I'm following Christ. And Jesus, he wants all of you, not just parts of you, not just Sunday you. He wants all of you, and he's deserving of all of you. So have you decided to make Jesus Lord of your life? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for Paul's description here. Lord, I thank you that, um, I mean, that we could preach this every Sunday and, and, and see more and more of who you are. God, that we will spend all of eternity recognizing your greatness, Jesus. Lord, I pray uh, for our church, for, uh, for this body of believers, that, that we would be a, a people that, um, that are, are continuously reminded and, and even shocked by, by how great you are, that, that nothing about you would become old to us, Lord, but that we would grow more and more in knowing who you are, Lord, that, that we would love that you've given us your word so that we, we, we not just study about you, but that we can, we can meet with you in your living word and be transformed by knowing you, Lord. And I pray that that would be the case, that, that we would mature, that we would grow, that, that our, our faith would be stable and steadfast, Lord. Jesus, would we bring glory to you by following hard after you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.